You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. Evil Corp seems to have been shuffling through some newspaper sites. Don't take the gang's communiques at face value, but some appear to be trolling for unprotected MongoDB databases. A look at Taurus and information stealer being sold in criminal-to-criminal markets. Chinese law and online security. The Earn It Act is being debated. Justin Harvey on smishing. Our guest is Jeff Stiles from Firemon on COVID-19 increasing misconfiguration risks. And there's trouble in Tilted Towers. From the CyberWire studios at Datatribe, I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire summary for Thursday, July 2nd, 2020. Evil Corp's recent actions against a range of U.S. corporations in the recent Wasted Locker campaign are said by Bleeping Computer and others to have affected a large number of newspaper sites run by a single parent corporation. The reports are based on a tweeted update to Research Symantec published last week, Neither the news outlets nor their corporate parent are named. These attempts don't appear to have been particularly successful. A CISA official and an IBM researcher have given CyberScoop an appreciation of ransomware gangs' growing sophistication. It's been common knowledge for the better part of a year that a ransomware attack should also be treated as a data breach. The gangs have for months adopted data theft as a core tactic, both for additional leverage against the victim and as an additional revenue stream. What's relatively new is the amount of effort expended in reconnaissance of the victims' networks. The criminals want to know what the victims have, where it's kept, and who has access. Krebs on Security warns that some news organizations have been overly willing to retail ransomware gangs' claims. He thinks simply transmitting the criminals' woofing only aids their marketing, and who wants that? So, good advice, don't take the hoods uncritically at their word. So on that note, we'll observe that this next story, reported by ZDNet, is sourced to the GDI Foundation, a group devoted to finding and responsibly disclosing vulnerabilities, and hardly ones to swallow Internet nonsense whole. They've noticed a problem afflicting MongoDB instances left exposed and unprotected online. Hackers have been using an automated script to scan for unsecured MongoDB databases and they found some 22,900, which by ZDNet's count amounts to about 47% of all such databases accessible online. Once an unprotected database is found, two things happen. First, the criminal backs up the data, and second, they wipe the original. That deletion was in some initial cases fumbled or overlooked, but the hoods seem now to have fixed their problem and become more adept at deleting information from their victims. Then they leave a ransom note. The ransom isn't particularly high, coming in at just 15 thousandths of a bitcoin. That's about $140. 
It is interesting, however, to see the extortionists use both a carrot and a stick to induce compliance with their chicken feed demand. The carrot is the promise that the wiped data will be restored from the crook's own backup. The stick is that the stolen data will be referred to European authorities to get the victim prosecuted under GDPR. There's also a deadline. The victim has 48 hours to decide, at which point it's adios data and hola information commissioner. Or so the crooks claim. Researchers at security firm Zscaler describe an information stealer, Taurus, currently sold in criminal-to-criminal markets. It's offered by the tastelessly self-named Predator the Thief, and it's carefully coded not to execute in 12 former Soviet republics. That's understandable, since accommodation to the organs has long been the better part of criminal valor. One might expect more unrestrained bravery from someone calling themselves Predator the Thief. Maybe Bottom Feeder the Scavenger would be better. Anywho, since we've never cooled our heels in an Orenburg slammer, maybe we shouldn't cast stones. Taurus concentrates on system information, passwords, cookies, browser history, autofill values, and cryptocurrency wallets. The payload is delivered by phishing. Predator the thief's criminal clients can keep track of where their fish bait is being swallowed on a snazzy dashboard with a heat map of the whole world. Not every former Soviet republic is immune, by the way. The map shows infections in the three Baltic states, none of which are particularly Moscow-friendly. China's national security law has effectively ended Hong Kong's former autonomy, the Register reports. The Wall Street Journal says this marks an end to business as usual in the city. The law is cast as a measure against secession, subversion, terrorism, and collusion with foreign forces. Those who run afoul of it are subject to removal to the mainland and long prison sentences, in principle extending to life. China's full online surveillance apparatus can henceforth be expected to be used against Hong Kong. But of course, the online cyber aspects of the national security law are not the most important of its effects. As far as extradition to the mainland is concerned, Foreign Affairs published an elegy for Hong Kong autonomy today under the title Hong Kong is part of the mainland now. Jeff Stiles is vice president of global field engineering at Firemon. Among the many security issues he and his team have been tracking during COVID-19 are a dramatic increase in misconfigurations. He joins us with these insights. So misconfigurations, think of it as, as human error, right? And this can happen on, on any form of technology, right? From overly permissive access to incorrect zone access, fat fingering a, a subnet, putting the wrong toggle in place, anything that's unintended, right? Whenever we're configuring a software, platform, hardware, um, you name it, you know, we make a mistake and then that mistake can be exploited. Now, mistakes are going to happen and, and uh, you know, people make mistakes. From your point of view, what are the most effective ways to mitigate them? You're right. So mistakes are going to happen. You know, we look at solving that from, from two aspects. There's the alerting mechanisms, right, which are typically reactive, meaning somebody makes the mistake we catch that mistake and then alert on it. Unfortunately, with the reactive state, you're, you're typically, uh, the damage is already done or could be done, right? So mm. we, we have to kind of evolve and look at a more of a proactive approach. So we wanna be able to catch a change before it goes live. So there's almost an element of staging in there, 
but the proactive place is really what we want to do. And, and we do this through a form of automation, right? We take the guesswork out of it. What is done by humans, we evaluate it before it goes live. And then every other step after that, we try to automate it to remove that, uh, that human error. Hmm. Now, how do you put something like that in place while balancing uh, the need to not introduce um, unnecessary or, or frustrating friction of slowing people down? Yeah, it's it's you know it's it's funny. Whenever we talk about security, there's always that balancing act, right? You, you go to one level, security becomes null and void. You go to the other side, it becomes so intrusive that nobody can get anything done because there's just too many hurdles. There's too many layers. Um, so you do have to find that balancing point. What about looking at all this through the lens of the COVID crisis that we find ourselves in today? How how does that affect the likelihood of of these misconfiguration errors? Yeah, that's a that's a great question. The uh, the COVID nineteen thing is really <laughs> it, it's it's really done a uh, a change in the way we do business and, and the way we look at things. So the spike in bad activity happening right now is all capitalizing on the shift to remote work. They're all trying to exploit all these people moving at a very fast pace with very little security uh, understanding. This becomes the breeding ground for misconfigurations. So we're seeing this across the board as everybody's trying to go from zero to 60 in you know <laughs> three seconds to, to, so they can go to work the next day and everybody's remote. They're making, a right. lot of, they're making a lot of errors and these things are what everybody is capitalizing on. A lot of interesting change happening during the COVID-19. That's Jeff Stiles from Firemon. Huawei has made its statement to the media concerning the U.S. Federal Communications Commission's designation of the company as a threat to national security. It wants a reprieve, denouncing the designation as based on selective information, innuendo, and mistaken assumptions. The company is canny enough to appeal to concerns about telecommunications for rural areas, and underserved regions generally. These constitute a natural market for the company's equipment. The U.S. Congress is taking up the Earn It Act in earnest today. Encryption fireworks, the Washington Post calls the discussion. The measure represents an anti-encryption shot in the crypto wars. We'll know more about how the debate proceeded after Independence Day weekend. And finally, Professor Hill, call your office because, oh, there's trouble, my friends in Tilted Towers. And there's a difference between a commoner and a lord or a lady with a capital L, and that stands for loot. Your young'uns have been frittering away their days and nights in Tilted Towers or Retail Row. ZDNet sounds the alarm. Britain's House of Lords wants to regulate loot boxes as a form of gambling. So do your Fortnite Charleston while you still can, kids, before my lord gets his hands on it, because frittering may be on the skids in Westminster. But if things like online poker, dog tracks, and loot boxes all cater to an addictive pursuit of the rainbow's end, then maybe my lord's got a point. Managing the requirements for modern security programs is increasingly challenging and time-consuming. Enter Vanta. Vanta gives you one place to centralize and scale your security program, quickly assess risk, streamline security reviews, and automate compliance for ISO 27001, SOC 2, and more. 
You can leverage Vanta's market-leading trust management platform to unify risk management and secure the trust of your customers. Plus, use Vanta AI to save time when completing security questionnaires. CyberWire daily listeners can get $1,000 off by going to vanta.com slash cyber. That's V-A-N-T-A dot com slash cyber. In the dynamic world of enterprise security, identity architects and IT leaders face a major challenge. Growth by repeated acquisitions multiplies the complexity of everything. Multiple IDPs, MFA providers, policy engines that all need to coexist. This can lead to fragmented user identities and policies that create security vulnerabilities and add access friction. Strata Identity solves this. Now you can decommission unneeded IDPs and consolidate the ones you'd like to keep without rewriting apps or disrupting users, engineers, and app owners. Plus, Strata's modular architecture makes it easy to integrate with any identity provider without manual maintenance and coding. Join the ranks of cybersecurity leaders using identity orchestration, Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your top identity security priorities, and receive a pair of complimentary AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations with over 5,000 employees. Step into a new era of identity management at strata.io slash cyberwire. And joining me once again is Justin Harvey. He is the Global Incident Response Leader at Accenture. Uh, Justin, always great to have you back. Um, you know, we hear a lot about uh, phishing. We hear about uh, vishing, which is uh, using uh, video for phishing. Uh, you wanted to touch today on uh, smishing, which you, which you and your team have been tracking as, as a growing problem. What are we talking about here? Well, smishing is when uh, you receive a fish or a scam uh, via an SMS text. And I don't mean your safe and secure blue iMessaging. We're just talking about straight off SMS, green text coming through uh, mm. your phone. We have seen an uptick in criminals that are utilizing SMS to distribute phishing attacks. And we have been training uh, the internet community for years now to really question emails coming through and like, oh, okay, this is the domain. Is it a real one? Is it too good to be true? But we've been kind of ignoring that we use our mobile devices so much and there's texts, there's iMessages, there's there's apps. And, and on a daily basis, we receive texts that are really important to us, like our Amazon delivery. Oh, it's around the corner. Okay, great. Mm-hmm, our food mm-hmm. delivery. And even our bank accounts alerting us to questionable behavior with our bank accounts. And then we're even receiving some uh, six-digit codes um, if we use SMS for two-factor. Right. And what's happening is is we, we are seeing criminals that are preying upon this because when you receive an unsolicited email and it hits your box, you're thinking, hmm, that's a little, it looks a little weird. It, it seems too good to be true. Maybe the graphics are off, but you'll be able to look at the domain name and say, uh, that, that doesn't look right. When it comes hmm. from a phone number, we haven't, phone numbers are numeric. So if, even if, Let's say the president of the United States sent you a text. 
it would come through as text because <laughs> you don't have the president's number or cell phone. I'm, I'm hoping right. that the majority well, you, of our you might of not, our listeners Justin, don't but... have. <laughs> yes. uh, I always pick up when the, the White House is, is uh, texting. Sure, sure. <laughs> so when you receive this text, it, it looks very benign. And given that it's in plain text, it, it's easy to be fooled and say, uh, click this link to know more. And then, of course, that link also is typically shortened with a with a short uh, shortening service like bitly right. or google and so when you get that text and says uh let's say bank of america has told you that uh you have a uh, um a fraudulent transaction please click this shortened link to go review it a lot of people are being fooled by that mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. it's it's important to remember to really question not only the source of the sms message but also the content and just be extra careful when you click that link and you, it opens up your browser that that also might not be an official source for that information. You know, I wonder too how much of this, uh, if there's a, a generational factor here as well, because I think about um, my children uh, and the amount that they use text messaging versus email compared to what, what I do, it's probably the exact opposite. You know, they to them, using email is something that only old people do, and, and they do pretty much everything through their texting. So it makes me wonder if they would be, just, just by virtue of the volume of messaging that they get, would that make them more susceptible to this? Or, being natives, are they more careful? Hmm. I think the jury is still out, but I think that this could probably be more associated with technology evolving to be more of a hybrid situation where people are using their browsers, but then they also have to use SMS to get multi-factors and to communicate. So I think it's just a sign of our times. Um, mm-hmm. The uh, and, and it's not like there can be a, a very easy fix for this. Given that uh, they come from numeric numbers, it's very hard to, uh, to whitelist or even blacklist um, because you don't know if, let's say, the next time that you go to do your multi-factor authentication, some services change their number that they text you from every time, or they have a bank of numbers, and there'd be no way to really whitelist or, or blacklist it. But mm-hmm. I think that the good rule of thumb here is really scrutinize the source and the message. And if you do think that this is from your bank or it's from it, it, it's legitimate, copy and paste the URL out of that put it into, let's say, a uh, a secure browser in secure mode or in privacy mode. I know that there are multiple modes out there for Safari and Edge and Chrome and Opera and Firefox. Everyone has that private browsing mode. Mm-hmm. And, and if you really do suspect that you need to see what's on there, utilizing that or even what I do a lot of times is actually take the source phone number and plug that into Google and try to do a reverse search. And what you find is that there's a lot of websites out there that catalog scamming uh, phone numbers. So a lot of times you can just right. plug in the phone number and you're like, hmm, there were five Scam. reports in the, pa- yeah, in, the, in the past <laughs> right. seven days um, right. Right. that I've won. And then the final thing uh, I, I would want to say here, Dave, is that no matter how important things are, if your bank or someone is sending you something that is critical via an SMS, Go to the website or go to your go to your bank or call them and say, hey, is this legitimate? I've got this message from you and it says it's important, but I want to verify it. Mm-hmm. And if you're mm-hmm. one of the many people that are signing up for text notifications on, on things, be very wary 
and being able to tell the difference between when you're getting a shipment notification or an ad from your uh, favorite uh, online retailer versus someone offering something that's too good to be true. Yeah. All right. Well, Justin Harvey, thanks for joining us. Thank you. And that's the Cyberwire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. And for professionals and cybersecurity leaders who want to stay abreast of this rapidly evolving field, sign up for Cyberwire Pro. It'll save you time and keep you informed. Listen for us on your Alexa smart speaker, too. The Cyberwire podcast is proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our amazing Cyberwire team is Elliot Peltzman, Peru Prakash, Stefan Vaziri, Kelsey Bond, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Carol Terrio, Ben Yellen, Nick Vilecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Iben, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here tomorrow. Tomorrow.